Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today's guest gives a new meaning to the phrase hooking up. He's a bear, a pup, and a Long Beach leather title holder. Get ready for some more Leather Talk. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today I have Eric Crow. Eric, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Hi there. Uh, my name is Eric Crow, legally, but my scene name is Eagle Bear. And when I'm in pup space, my name is Cider. Cider with an I or Cider with a Y, depending on which space I'm in. Um, that's very interesting. And <laughs> I'll have to ask you more about that later. Uh, yeah. uh, would you please let us know your gender and your sexual orientation? I am uh, gay, cis male. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I'm 51 years old. Awesome. And how long have you been in the leather community? I have been, I'm an old timer. <laughs> I've, been, I've been in the community since 2001. Okay. Yeah, it's so funny because like when I think back to 2000, it sounds so like new age because I remember being around in 2000, like, oh, you're going to have flying cars when you're 16. Um, and now that's 20 years ago. So yeah. you've been in the community for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's really awesome. And so what got you interested in the first place? How did you find out about it? That actually goes back a few years before I got involved. I came out in the San Diego leather community. So I lived there for a number of years. And there was a coffee house uh, on 5th in the Hillcrest, which is the neighborhood. And there on the patio, on the outdoor patio, was this group called Gay Leathermen Only. And they were what you would think of as the rough and tough grumble motorcycle leather dude. They were there to, they were there to be seen. Um, but it was, they very much lived up to their title, as I learned later on, um, uh, gay leathermen only. And so I just noticed them and I observed them, was a little intimidated by it, uh, by, the whole, by the whole picture of it, but not in an unfriendly way. So then a few months later, I went and actually bought my very first piece of leather. So did you did you go and interact with any of these men before picking up a piece of leather? Or was it sort of like an, an entry way you had to go get a piece of leather to feel comfortable to, to go up to them? Uh, I would say that, you know, the image of them in the was in the background. Um, but I just wanted to, I wanted to go visit one of the one of the shops that my parents would tell me, Oh, don't you go in there. <laughs> and it just so happened to be in a shop that's not no longer open, hasn't been open for years, called Hard Labor Leather. Um, and it was a zippered sleeveless vest. So it was it, it was it was the right leather in the wrong person's hands. Because <laughs> I had no clue. I had no clue whatsoever that you'd think I would go to a bar like the Eagle, which was a few blocks away, or Wolf's, which was the the kind of 
harder core leather bar down the street. But no, I went to a sports bar called Flix in Hillcrest. Oh, Flix is still yeah. around, right? It, it okay, is. Yeah. I went there a couple years ago for St. Patrick's Day. That's a whole other story. Um, but okay, so keep going. You're in <laughs> leather and you're going into Flix? Yeah, yeah, sadly. <laughs> so um, what happened there? Because I, I don't think I remember many people in leather. Yeah, absolutely nothing happened there. I was in my vest and I was trying to show off and that was that. <laughs> and, you know, I stayed, uh, I stayed for a little while um, and I put the vest on every once in a while, but there was no attachment to it. Um, there was no attachment to the, the images uh, or the gear quite yet. I, I, wore it for, I wore it for show. So I didn't have much more exposure to that until two years later. One of, the, one of the bars that I mentioned earlier, Wolf's, had a back room. And to get into the back room, you either had to be shirtless or you had to have an article, an item of leather on. So I, uh, you know, I didn't have leather and I didn't bring the vest with me, so I just went shirtless. And that's like going, once you, once you pass through the leather apron as they had, it's a whole different world. That's awesome. Is Wolf still around? No, it, it closed around 2004, 2005. I think it's a wine bar now. Okay, what a bummer. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a couple of years later and I had moved back to, moved back to San Diego and I found myself uh, just going to the same old bars that I was going to before and not really getting anything at all, any reading. Nobody was paying me any mind. Um, I tried cruising, but that didn't work. And I thought to myself, you know, I didn't move to I didn't move back to San Diego just for a better bar scene. Yeah. Um, so I went as an invitation. Uh, a friend invited me to come hear him sing with his choir, with his church choir. And this was at Metropolitan Community Church in San Diego. Yeah, definitely. We we have a an MCC church actually just uh, maybe about a mile north of of my apartment here in, in North Hollywood and. It's so funny because every time I go there, it's because of like an avatar event or and it's just funny to see like a bunch of guys in leather or selling their gear mm-hmm. over at a church. Like it just feels so funny. Um, that's where we had like the, the interviews too for the uh, uh, Mr. Bullet Leather competition. Mm-hmm. That was uh, MCC Church in the Valley? Yeah, over in North Hollywood. I went there for the LA Pup t- uh, contest last November. That was so much fun. Um, I also need to let you know that we have a, we, I have somebody here with me. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> That's Eric. He's my squeak monkey. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's my toy. And that sort that will sort of tie into my name, my pup name. All right. Yeah. So. Okay. So now I'm curious about, you, you've mentioned you're, you're a pup and, and, and you've, you know, been in the leather community for X amount of years. Did the pup thing happen as you were getting into leather or was that something that was kind of inherent from before that happened as i uh got further along in my journey as a leatherman um and i started out as a handler okay uh for for a couple of pups you know i i understood it from the handler's perspective or from the human perspective and one of my dear friends in San Diego was kind of my gateway into the pup world that with a couple of times that we had together. But the one thing that I learned from him by observation was his sense of loyalty, mm. which is a characteristic a lot of pups have. And then a few years later, I had moved up to San Francisco 
and I had collared a boy who was also a pup. We would have regular pup time. This was my first experience with someone who definitely went into pup space and became non-human. He would have like a signal or something, we would do something to him. I would put my hand on his nose and he would put his nose down. When he came back up, there he was. He was in full pup mode. How did that, I'm I'm just curious, how did that first come about? Like, did you guys talk about that or did it just happen one day and you went with it? I think we talked about it and he wanted to go, he wanted to have that experience with me. And I was, I was curious and, you know, I was willing to facilitate and just, we, we did pick a night and, and we did that uh, and we went there into his space and that was unlike anything I'd ever done. What does that look like? Play that is completely animalistic like that. What, what it looked like at that particular experience was he was very he was very much in his space he he was where he needed to be the question of it for me as a handler was where do i need to be mm-hmm. and because i had i had not had the experience i'd had i'd only had the one other pup that was that was a good friend but you know we never really got to get on the mat so to speak but we did this time and it was just the, the only thing that kept, the only thing that came to my mind was to like get the pup to do tricks. Okay. Um, you know, like roll over and fetch and all of that. And the thing that I found myself doing more than anything else during that first time was, is laughing. Partly because to me at that time, it was just so absurd, but yet it, it, it was just so right. <laughs> uh, and, and I was like, there's, there's no wrong, I mean, there's no, real, there's no wrong way to be a pup. Yeah, you can be playful, you can be sexual, you can be loyal. Uh, so was was he vibing off of that kind of playful mentality that you were directing him towards? Yeah, I, I would say yes, because one of my favorite games that I like to play with him was keep away the ball. Because, you know, he would do like, when you play keep away with a with a ball and, and you got a pup that wants the ball, he'll go to any lengths to try and get the ball. Mm. And, and that was fun. That, went, that was when the, the, the humor of it turned into actual fun, and I was playing with him just as much as he was playing with me. And so how long did this relationship last? Uh, we were together two years, two years and a few months, and we, we did do pup play uh, several times, but not, like, not as a regular activity. Yeah, that's, uh, it's really interesting because you know, I, I've interviewed actually a few pups, and every time I talk to a pup, they have experienced it in different ways. And like you, you came from like the handler side and had like a relationship. Can you describe a little bit of how you got into the handler mode in the first place? Well, it was the space that I knew because I was at that point in my life, I was more dominant and submissive. Um, and so this, as I understood it at the time, was the dom side of pup space. So it just, it sort of came naturally to me that way. And I, it was also my boy. So we kept that dynamic because in this case, he was not a top at that time. Not at all. Okay. And so when did that switch? Because I, you know, we hear your squeaky toy over there. <laughs> your pup space. <laughs> Um, it, it switched. I think I went to a mosh at a bar in San Francisco and saw the pups actively getting into it in a playpen with toys and squeak toys. And um, I just started observing that. And I think something got into me that I carried with me. Something of the energy that was there at the event got into me. 
And maybe a couple of months after that relationship had ended, I was at a contest in Palm Springs. And there was a couple there, a gay male couple. And uh, one of them was in, was in headspace, was in pup space. And it just struck me enough to that I, to the point that I went over to ask uh, the handler some questions. And we ended up talking a lot throughout the contest. And the next day at the at this contest, uh, they have they, they would have a barbecue, and it's at one of the resorts. I found him, and he convinced me to actually get inside a cage. Wow, by yourself? Yeah, by myself. And he just let me experience the cage. Um, but then also to understand, I got to understand um, the folk, the idea of the focal point, that pups always have, to have something they're focusing on in play or what have you, or if, they, if they're looking at a ball, they're focusing on that. And so in that cage, I had nothing else to do but to put my entire focus on the person that was handling me from outside of the cage. And to just give focus to that, that's, that's a very... For me, that's a very Zen thing to do is to put, you know, put, put my attention on what's in front of me. Yeah. And I mean, in many ways, a lot of sexual activities and especially in the fetish world force you to focus on one point and kind mm-hmm. of take all the distractions from the rest of your life away just for that, that moment that you're in it. Um, yeah. I can only imagine what that's like, you know, being in a cage and, and sort of under the will of your handler. Well, I'll tell you, it really, after I got out of the cage, it released something inside of me because for the rest of that day, um, I was just being passed around uh, from this guy to that guy, and I didn't care. <laughs> what do you mean by passed around? Like, I was very, you know, I'm very affectionate and tactile by nature, and I, I like to experience different men if I'm at a bar setting. And so I just didn't have any guard up. So it was just easy for me to like lean into somebody and just see what they wanted to do. Okay. When you, let's say you're getting into this pup space and you have a handler, and I'm sure a lot of trust goes along with that handler because um, he's sort of kind of guiding you through, you know, the, the, the dynamic there at the, at the bar. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't, you, you were playing for like an hour or something and, and you're just like, okay, I'm done. Uh, I, I want to snap out of this now so I can go be on my own for a little bit. How would that work? Or, or have you ever been in that situation where you like have to tell your handler, okay, I'm ready to snap out of it? Or is it completely up to him when he's ready for you to come out of that headspace? I actually can't answer that question because I've never had a handler. I'm a, I, I'm a stray. Oh, Okay. So uh, this, the, uh, after that experience in Palm Springs, it laid, uh, my pup energy laid dormant in me for, for a number of years um, until 2019, actually 2020. It laid dormant in, in me until 2020 when I just decided I was going to embrace it and play with it more, play with my pup space more. Because by then, the... Um, the energy of pup play changed from 2011 or 2010 until what we see now. How so? Well, it's different because there, there are more pups that are coming out to play. And the, the line between pup space and human space is more free, if anything. Um, for me, I, um, I can get into pup space and out of pup space just as quickly as I want to. So those lines are a little bit less defined. 
Mm-hmm. Is that a, a good thing for you, or or is that something that you would rather change, like back in 2011? Um, it's a good thing for me now, but I know that um, I've also started since that time that I, that I first started to experience that. Um, that I have also gone into scenes where I, I don't want that line to be so easy to cross. Okay. And that that came when I got a hood. And so the the story behind that is that I'd had my pup collar for a, a while, about a year. And I was on a trip to San Diego to go to the Leather Fetish Ball in February. And I stopped in a place called Pleasures and Treasures, uh, which is in uh, University Heights, uh, North Park area, a few blocks away from another sports bar called Pex, because I wanted to go shopping for something for the evening. And I also wanted to take the person that uh, drove me down into the store and show him around. And we were just looking around, and all of a sudden we came upon this section that had lots of slapping toys, lots of floggers, lots of fun kinky things and on hanging on the walls opposite me were hoods were puppy hoods and i just felt something in me leap out and just wanted to try one on (laughs) and so i go and i had the attendant go behind the counter and we pulled out two one of them was gray and black but it was too small for me but then the other one was black with a purple muzzle purple and black muzzle Purple uh, is one of my favorite colors, and uh, purple also is piercing when you flag it. So uh, she handed it to me, and I put it on, and with just a few few adjustments so that I could see clearly out of it, Pup Cider had arrived. That line, I crossed over that line, and I felt felt like a puppy. (laughs) I'd had a few people say that uh, you don't really need to have a pup hood or anything really to consider yourself a pup. So I was encouraged by that. But then once I saw the pup hoods, they call, it called out to me. And trying it on, it sort of fulfilled something inside of me. And I began to actually act like a puppy. <laughs> I felt, you know, in my, in my body, in my physical presence, I wagged my tail. I sort of nuzzled people. I, I do this thing with, which is when I like you, I butt my head into your shoulder, <laughs> and I it was just I was just becoming that part of me. Um, it seemed finally, and we were going to the leather fetish ball later that night, and I put the hood on after we got inside the location of the fetish ball, which was actually Rich's, which was, used to be in the '90s when I first went there, uh, a circuit dance club. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, but they have they have taken a turn to catering toward the leather community and the bear community with a monthly bear dance and then other various uh, kink and fetish events. Once we got inside and uh, checked our bags, uh, I put on the hood and walked around and to see if anybody would recognize me. And it took a good ten minutes for somebody to come up and and, and spot me. And in fact, usually the way that I would have to let people know who I was was to turn around for them so they could see my title patch. So, so did you like that the fact that people didn't recognize you because of the hood? Was that part of the headspace for you? A little bit, but I was also I was wondering if they would recognize me by personality. The ones there were a couple that spotted me right away when they ran into me. But then others, once outside the patio, 
Um, others recognized me, uh, whether I turned my back and showed the title patch or I actually lifted the hood. And they were surprised. And they, they did the surprise thing that you do when you see a cute puppy. <laughs> it's like, oh, and they started giving me scritches and they started they started giving me hugs and all of that. And I, I felt myself wagging, uh, wagging my imaginary tail and, and just bouncing up and down and feeling this exuberance that, that just comes through when I describe what happened. And so this, you know, I tried it on. I, I had to take it off because it would it would get too hot inside the inside the dance club. Um, but then when I put it back on, it, it's it just was back into that space and back into that world. And that was crystallized for me when uh, my friend and I both ran into this gorgeous bear. And we were both sniffing him out. And he had a flogger with him. And he wanted to flog my friend. And I, we went to a certain part of the bar and he started going to town. Uh, he, he, started, he started flogging my friend. And my friend was, had his hands against the wall leaning back and I got in between him and the wall and was there for him because it was going to be a pretty intense flogging and I wanted to, him to have some kind of comforting uh, gesture while he was there. And while I was there, I just looked out at the crowd and surveyed everything and I felt, I felt like I was there, but I wasn't there. Like I was, I was new, like, like something, I was there, but I was something new. Transformed. Oh, yes. I'll go. That, that, that seems a good word at this time. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was uh, for about five minutes, but those were, those were my five favorite minutes that night, I think. Yeah, it seems like that's very, a very memorable uh, moment for you. So the, the, the hood itself sort of facilitates you coming in and out of that pub space. <clears throat> I'm just referring, in, you know, in my mind back to what Don Mike said. In the mm -hmm. first episode, how, you know, the, the, the pups these days, he was sort of describing that, you know, he witnessed a lot of situations where like pups will be playing in a mosh and then they just get up out of mosh pit and go have a beer really quick or go talk to somebody. And his experience, I think, was similar to yours in 2011, where those lines were harder and all the distractions kind of went off to the wayside and it, it was a headspace more than it was like a, just a playful thing for him at least. Um, and I think right. that's what you're describing here. It is. I'm going to draw an unusual comparison. You've seen the movie to Wong Fu. No, I haven't, but I'm sure some of our listeners have. <laughs> a part at the very beginning when the character Vita Boem puts her wig on and she looks at herself in the mirror and she says the, she says the words, mama's here <laughs> so it felt like that moment when i put the hood on it felt like that moment okay not no, not, not so it, yeah it felt like that moment it felt like i i i was here like if i'm at um the first event after i won mr long beach leather was uh barking billiards at eagle 562 and Barking Billiards is a weekly event where the pups get together. Uh, they play billiards, they mosh, they, they have conversations. They have conversations where they speak human. <laughs> um, but I would say before that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate with a story and, a, and a, an audio aid. Sure. Um, the moment I realized uh, what it was all about. So I was working out at the gym and I was in a really kind of playful endorphinated mood from a good workout. And I had a squeak toy with me. 
And I was leaving the gym and I just started squeaking. I just started squeaking it at people. <laughs> and then I got outside, uh, the, I walked outside, the, walked outside the, the entrance doors and I just put the, I put this, the chew toy in my mouth and did like that for a few seconds. And as soon as I had that contact with that squeak toy, it all made sense. How did that make sense to you? And what clicked? The release of energy, um, the, the, the being able to express myself without talking, without speaking in, in, in a language that I use a lot. Mm-hmm. And just the, it's, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it, it's, it's, almost, it's almost unexplainable what it is for me that, that it does that. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny because like, I think a a lot of times people don't give themselves the freedom to explore the other layers of themselves and discover those, um, you know, kind of hidden personalities or hidden headspaces. And it seems like you've kind of tapped into that, but it it definitely took you a number of years. What uh, advice would you have for somebody who is kind of open and willing to explore, but doesn't know what direction to go? Go with what makes you feel like yourself the most. Mm. Go with what makes you tune into a part of yourself. If you find in the context of a scene something that really just like gets to you, pay attention to that. Focus on it <laughs> to go yeah. to kind of go back to it. Focus on that and see what that means for you and just explore it further and play with it. Yeah, I think if you're sensitive to, like you said, tapping into something that feels like you, even if it's something totally new, like you'll you'll know pretty quickly whether or not this is vibing with you. You know, it's okay to like try out new things and maybe it doesn't work out, but like you'll know pretty quickly. Like for example, um, like I've gone to those cigar nights at the Bullet or or at the Eagle. I'm in the situation, you know, where all of these daddies are like smoking cigars. I think it's hot Mm. to be around Mm. that, but I myself will not grab a cigar and put it in my mouth. It just doesn't vibe with me. Like that's just not me, you know, to do that on my own, to to partake like that, but to Mm -hmm. be around it and be in that energy and that, that works for me that like, that gets me off. But could you imagine little little twink Brandon with the cigar, like, <laughs> I mean, like, well, you know what? I don't know. The question I want to ask you is, is, um, do you not feel comf- do, you, do you not feel like that's you or do you not feel like that's you yet? I don't know. Uh, that's a really good question because I think, you know, I can grow into that space. Um, mm-hmm. but like, I just, I think because I see myself as the more of like the, the boy, in that mm-hmm. situation, then like I, I'm not able yet to really like click into that role where I like I'm mm-hmm. holding a cigar. Like I would rather be the, the boy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to like a more masculine man than myself. Um, now, let's say in 20 years, I might revisit that and realize, hey, that was mm-hmm. underneath there the whole time. But like you said, like being sensitive to like only do something that that is really. It's if it's part of you, like if it's yeah. vibing with you. Right now, at this point, that doesn't vibe with me. Um, mm-hmm. But I do like being. I, ha- I like the excitement of being in that kind of situation. Yeah. Um. So I guess you know, to your point, like give yourself some time. Like it took you many years to get to where you're at. Mm-hmm. 
It did. And it did. I was not in a rush. I knew that it would come out eventually. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, basically. And sometimes that can be kind of scary. Have you ever explored something a little bit and you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm into that. Oh, what's that Uh, mean? (laughs) There's um, actually, there's a few things. One that's kind of safe for me to talk about and one that's really not safe for me to talk about. Okay. Um, The thing that's safe for me to talk about is uh, piercing. Oh. Yeah. And uh, I'm a big old, I I I flag purple right whenever I get the chance now. So tell me about a little bit about that because Bam Bam's talked about piercing. I know the the current uh, Mr. LEL is into piercing. Uh, what is it about piercing that gets you off? <clears throat> um, I'm going to start uh, with a story uh, again. A sure. lot of, a lot of my, uh, a lot of the questions you ask me have stories. <laughs> stories um, so I'm going to, go back to uh, a camp out that I went to a year before and I was tasked with putting on a workshop. And so I chose to do a workshop about leather spirituality and I didn't know where they would put me in the, in the workshop schedule. Um, but much to my surprise, they put me at the start of it. So uh, that, that put a little bit of pressure on me to like really bring it because mm-hmm. normally what happened, what happened at this retreat is that they would walk a labyrinth. And so I was coming before that experience. So what I did was I wanted to get something that would get their attention because, you know, it's leather spirituality, but people tend to think of that in terms of like religion and things like that. And people are uncomfortable enough speaking about that anyway. But there, you know, there's a small subset in the community that look at leather as leather spirituality. Um, What they get in a lot of the play and a lot of the scenes that they do um, it has great like spiritual connotations to them, spiritual ecstasy, and things of that nature. So I, you know, I was jumping into that, and uh, I was jumping into that end of the pool. And I knew that you know it, it's always precarious to talk about that. But I knew that there was a way that I, could, I wanted to find a way to get them present to the experience they were about to take part in, which was the weekend. So it was like a roundtable meeting with chairs and everything. And it was in uh, it was in a place called the Heart Lodge, um, and I had a friend who was into single tails come in just before the start of the meeting, and we all kind of got uh, we we got centered through a meditative exercise, uh, which was where I asked I asked everybody to get quiet, and then I had him go through various parts of this lodge and crack the single tail, and I had him wait like 10, 10 to 15 seconds in between each crack. And then he'd go to a different part of the room and he cracked the whip again. And, you know, I had him repeat this three times. So this is just around the, this isn't uh, whipping anybody, right? It, it, no. It's just in the air. No, it, it is. It is. And I'd heard that Guy Baldwin did, used to do this um, when he'd get the contestants at IML. He'd just walk around the, wo- or walk around the room with a whip, just sort of like circling it. Hmm. making circular motions to get people's attention. Um, I heard about this after the fact. Um, but yeah, I wanted to get them present. And I thought, you know, what better a way to get them present by using one of the one of the tricks of the trade, so to speak. Um, <laughs> because the silence is what I wanted them to get present to. Mm-hmm. That space where you 
become silent and you become still and you allow the event and the experience to come inside you. And it worked. We had a great workshop that was about an hour, very collaborative workshop. And people definitely said that they were present to the experience. And then they all went out and walked the labyrinth because when they were walking the labyrinth, the idea was that they would figure out, they would contemplate what they wanted to do and what they wanted to get out of the weekend. So, uh, and that, you know, that's completely up to, uh, that was completely up to them, but you know, it, it was, it was an honor to like put them on that path by just getting them centered and getting them present to the experience. Like I said, the experience they were about to undergo. So that's the preface to all of this. Um, a lot of leather and a lot of leather experiences that I have, um, I do for the spirituality of it. You have to breathe through a lot of the experiences. You have to have proper breathing, you know, control of your breathing, because if you're in a particularly intense scene and you lose that, you hyperventilate and that takes you out of the scene. And, you know, that ends it for everybody and it's not fun. Another part of that is the presence but another part of that is also the intimacy that's involved in a deep, meaningful, intense scene. That between two people or between three people or even between a group of 10 to 15 people. I mean, I've, I've felt that kind of intimacy in a stadium before a rock concert. And it, it's, it's something that I could, I could write a, a million words about and I would still never come close to it, <laughs> expressing it because <laughs> it just is what it is. Yeah. Um, so that's the preface. So fast forward about a year later, and I uh, am about to do this hook pull, and I'm there with a friend, uh, and we're gonna do the we're gonna do the buddy pull, as as the uh, as the facilitator uh, explained it. And that whole morning, I, I was looking for a way to get out of it. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I had said, oh, I, I put, I put on, you know, I put on big britches and I said, oh, I'm just gonna, yeah, why not? What, what the hell? But then the next, the next, the next morning I, I wasn't feeling it. I was like, I had to, I, I was looking, for, I was just looking for reasons. I was looking for a way out. Um, I had a good talk with a person I was going to do this, pull, this experience with, um, and that got me back on track to do it. But then when it actually came time for us to gather in the meeting place, um, that started, that, that little internal monologue started. Yeah. Um, and I just said, you know, I was really looking for a way out. And then some little part of me inside me said, you know, you're here, you're here and you trust these people. They're not gonna take it in the wrong direction on purpose. So what's this about? <laughs> And so it was, that was me calling myself out um, mm -hmm. when I was in the state. So it's like talking myself out of the, out of the self-talk because that, that's like, uh, if, I, if I don't silence that voice personally, sometimes that voice just chatters on and on and on and tells me, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. You, you're not good enough for this. You're not good enough for that. Right. So I just said, why not? <laughs> what, <laughs> you know, what, could it, what could it hurt? And I remember that I had the power to say no. So we were there and I started watching people, you know, have the hooks inserted into them. And basically what it is, is that it's just like a piercing. They put this, they put the straight rod in and then the earring, they hook the earring in or, or the piercing in. Um, and it was the same thing here. And then it came my turn to do it. <laughs> and I, I asked, yes. Yeah, so there, there I was, I was right there at the threshold. I'm nervous. <laughs> oh my God. No, <laughs> 
me too. I was nervous too. But I had the, I had my pole buddy with me and he put his hands on my back in sort of like a paternal gesture. And I did it. And you know, there was breathe there's breathing exercises that you do to get into it and when you exhale is when the needle goes in. Uh, so this was a memorable experience for me, and I took the time to write it down. At the time that I wrote it down, it was for a creative writing class, and I just kept adding to it and changing it uh, according to the skills that I gained in the class. So I'm going to read a few uh, pages from that. Um, and it starts out as follows. Warmth from Ben's eyes pierces my heart like the hooks about to pierce my chest. This needs to start soon or I'll lose my guts, I ruminate to myself, as Ben and I take up two spots on a bench. Yet, even though everyone at the porch of the Spirit Lodge are sitting and waiting, we start the ritual when the time feels right. In a few minutes, the group moves inside and each one takes a spot around a table with piercing equipment spread out evenly. I find myself looking for a reason to leave. A daddy's single tail is at work on someone's back. Its crack and reverb into silence had fascinated me all throughout the weekend and driven me to ecstasy just two days ago. But now in my mind, it's an annoying distraction that shouldn't be happening, and why can't we just do this somewhere more quiet? It's called a hook pull, Jacob explains, and it's a modern-day example of the ancient ritual practice of achieving spiritual ecstasy through physical pain. Even though I was told that morning that I didn't have to hook up to anyone in the group if I didn't want to, I would see some aesthetic or attribute of someone in the group that my mind decided it didn't like. I came that close to blurting out the words, you know, I'm just not cool with this, so I'm just going to go do something else. You have a choice of needles or hooks in your chest, or you can get a spear put through your cheeks or a smaller needle through the third eye chakra. You can also have more than one type used at the same time if you like, Jacob explains. As we get up to take our place in line, my posture relaxes a bit. I want to do this, but I'm not sure how to feel about it. Last time I tried it, I felt like it drained energy away from me. Without looking, we jump in line ahead of Hank, an older participant. Ben thanks him, saying, it'll be worth your while. Jacob continues informing the group. The longer and harder the pull is on the hooks in you, the more intense the flood of endorphins will be. You might even have a full body orgasm. He cleans and prepares my skin with alcohol and disinfectant wipes. It is time to cross the threshold. The first piercing needle is ready for entry. Inhale deep, he instructs, and when you exhale, that's when the, that's when the needles go in. Upon entry, I feel my eyes go wide. My heart jumps. These are much bigger than what I had first used on me for normal play piercing. The opening is brought back out as if to thread my chest, stopping before re-entry and capped off with cork and elastic draped around the needle. The process is repeated on my right peck. When not being touched, these foreign objects make no pain, but there is no forgetting they are there. When first pulled, muscle tissue stretches while the body adapts to the sensation. An unjustified phantom dread in the back of my mind says, if I pulled too hard or without care, they could come back out causing a big rip. But the voices so busy inside my head are now being silenced by a new voice. 
a voice that seizes up the situation in the time it takes for a pencil to drop and tells me, now is not the time to be tough and run away. It's time to be vulnerable. It's okay. You're safe here. Trust them. Once the second hook is capped, Jacob ties a rope string to the elastic around each hook and puts a smaller purple carabiner in Aaron in my hand, informing, this is what you and Ben will use to connect together when you want your hands to be free to pull against each other's rope. I'm not at all sure of what is about to happen, but I know Ben has been by my side all weekend. Why would he jump ship now? Also, Though Ben is no longer behind me, I still feel the energy of his hands on my back. A little charm to guide me through, perhaps. We walk outside behind the lodge to the yard, over to the shade trees closest to the southern inroad of the camp. We spend a long half hour bound to any of its three trunk-sized branches. We only unhook from each other to stand behind the other and caress the other's skin or kiss and nuzzle the nape of his neck. Butterflies have been fluttering all around camp the whole weekend, and they will join in here as well. A brown monarch lands on a flat piece of ground and brazenly crosses our path. Ben pulls me away from the tree toward the center of the yard. We take each other's string or hook and alternate between hard and soft tugs. As our eyes meet and lock, I see once again and at last those vivid blue pools I saw all those years ago in the desert pleading back gratitude to me. At this point, everything in my periphery begins to fade. My eyes close and my breath slows as I chant a simple long OM three times. Ben joins in the last time and adds his harmony to the chant. His inner energy and chakra fields leads him through flowing waves of emerald green. My inner energy and chakra fields lead me through flowing waves of emerald green which I'd visualized in scenes earlier the weekend. I honor the moment with a final breath of silence, a bow of my head, and I walk away for a drink of water inside. While I'm inside, I set out to think of a way to show my appreciation. Once back outside, I take Ben's hand and lead him back to the same grassy spot where we chanted. I put my string in Ben's hand and tell him, pull as tight as you can. While he does this, I get on my knees, place my hands behind my back, and lean back as far as I can, holding his gaze all the while. I utter three words I hadn't said in seven years. Thank you, sir, before lowering my head. I have presented myself in full submission to Ben, who after a minute tugs me at my arm for me to stand up. He lets go of the string and it produces a wild, trembling energy that rushes from head to foot and back up to my root chakra. Reduced to my most elemental form, all I can do is stand there and shake. Now Jacob comes outside and interacts with us. We are all his subs at this point. I watch Jacob finish pulling with everyone else and then me. His dark brown eyes dart furiously back and forth while he pulls as hard as he can, even plucking the strings. I am now completely under his influence. I see nothing else, only his eyes. The pain from the needles has now vanished, and along with it, 18 weeks worth of anxious fear and emotional pain. I see no black and white in my peripheral vision, only color. There is nothing to fear.
A few minutes later, Jacob remarked, that's the first time I've ever seen anyone's pupils become the size of pinpoints. The kind of pupils you get but don't need to drop acid for, psychedelic. We laugh and hold hands for a moment and the hook pull has concluded. We go in for aftercare and clean up. Once my hooks are removed, I embark on the part of the journey I have to walk alone. I go outside to the Spirit Lodge patio and sit on a bench. Barry, a member of my newly adopted family, looks in my eyes and as an attempt to reassure me of my headspace says, you're here on the patio outside the Spirit Lodge. I'm grateful he's looking after me, but I can only manage a soft muttered, uh-huh, thank you, for a reply. Time begins to slow down. A bliss body begins flooding through me. It makes me feel drowsy, but without the need for sleep. The Saturday afternoon sky hooks my mind now and gives me another chance at gratitude. Whether my eyes are open or closed, I am at rest. As long as I stay there, still and quiet, is as long as I can hold the moment. No substance, natural or otherwise, has ever taken me so high. And no deity has ever answered my prayer as honestly. This is the peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Wow, that's a really deep recollection of your experience. And it's, it, it seems to me that that experience stuck with you so long because of the spiritual aspect of it. And I can't help but recognize that the peace that surpasses all understanding, that is a sort of a phrase that's used a lot in Christianity. Mm-hmm. It is, yes. Does that have any ties with this story? It does because I'd, I'd heard that phrase used, I don't know how many times throughout my life as a young Christian, mm-hmm. but this was me actually feeling what I was told. So it was, it was, it was becoming true. Yeah, I know, I, I know what you're, what you're saying there is like, we're, we're taught, I mean, I grew up Catholic, so, you know, but just in Christianity, we're, we're taught a lot of things about spirituality, but mm-hmm. not always are we given the opportunity to experience it. So it seems like this was your chance where you finally reached that level. It, it was, and it, it actually stayed with me in some form or another for two weeks after camp ended, for two weeks. It's like, all I would have to do is think about some part of the experience or some part of the weekend, and I was back there I, I could even still feel like phantom sensations where the hooks were in. I, I, I've never felt that before. That's so intense. And, yeah. <laughs> and years later at the same camp, I would cross another threshold when I went from doing a hook pull to a hook suspension. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> I, I can imagine that that's a... Uh probably a whole other narrative story <laughs> that we could go into. Um, so listeners, stay tuned. Uh, you might hear a bonus episode on uh, some hook suspension from Eric Crow later on. <laughs> Indeed, yes. So we've talked a lot about uh, different kinks and different fetishes, but I want to hear more about you and, and your history, how you've gotten into it. We've talked a little bit about you know the whole pup thing and you getting into the, the leather bar scene. 
what else can you tell us about uh, coming into the, the leather community? Interestingly enough, um, leather history is kind of a fetish of mine, if you will. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a fascination of mine. Um, the thing about leather history is that it's all personal history. Even if it's an event like IML or uh, International Leather Sur, it's, it's all people's histories coming together to form history. And I, I am blessed, and we are all blessed to be in a point where we are still making history. Absolutely. And that is something, the names and the places and the events, the, the pins on people's vests, which tell you the story of the events that they've been to, that is one of the most significant things to me about the leather community, is the places we've gone and the places we want to go. Yeah. Did you have a chance to go and check out the leather archives at USC when it was up? The one archives? Yeah, the one archives. Sorry. Yeah, the one archives. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. Um, I went there with one of uh, with one of your title brothers, in fact. And okay. just to see that part, just to see that part of, uh, just to see all of the pictures and, and the older style gear that, that was hanging up. It really, it puts my head in a certain mind state. Yeah, and I've said before, you know, I I feel like I might may have been a gay man in a past life as well, like uh-huh. <laughs> early sixties or early seventies or something. Because mm-hmm. I walk when I walked around and saw all of the news articles and the the different posters from the bars that don't exist anymore. I have like this sense of nostalgia, and I know I wasn't there for those events, but I feel a part of it somehow. And the one thing is I want to, because you said, like you said, like the history is so personal, Mm -hmm. you know, I would see a a picture, you know, like one of the first leather title holders in the drummer magazine, for example, or I'd see a poster from, you know, officer's club that bar, you know, by name is no longer around. And what I was missing is I want to hear their voices. I would give anything to, have available a recording of, you know, Mr. Drummer 19, whatever. Oh, yeah. And just to hear him tell his story. And that's why I think it's so important right now what we're doing. Because in 50 years, someone's going to be listening back, Eric, and hearing your story, Mm -hmm. and it's going to inspire them. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, So it's uh, personal history, it's shared history, and it's dynamic history, ever changing, ever moving. And I think we should be grateful for that fact. Yeah. Um, uh, because otherwise, you know, there's the, that's where the joy, that's where the joy in the history is. The joy in, in, in hearing the personal stories and the, the joy that I have in getting to talk about some of the things that I like and some of the places that I've been and where I, where I get to go now. Um, just, uh, just it, it, it means it means more than I could ever write about. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think that's what makes it so unique um, being a part of the leather community, but that it, it really does have to be experienced. And you can hear some of these stories straight from the horse's mouth, I like to say, when you meet people in person. Right. And, uh, you know, had we not been here at, stuck at home right now, I'd imagine we'd be a at a bar right now with Long Beach or something having this conversation. We're just blessed, I think, to have the technology that we have today to do this. But I am curious then, if, you know, in 50 years someone is listening back, what would be the story, what would be the message that you would want to send to people 50 years from now listening to your podcast right now? 
I know that's a deep. Uh, <laughs> it is. <loading>. It is. <laughs> the message is that we're still here. Hmm. That's really as, as simple as it needs to be, that we're still here, that we're still out there doing these, that we're still out there doing it and doing it well enough to last another 50 years, especially given the fact that along about 1982, there came along a, a little something called HIV that basically wiped out a generation of people, of men, and could have stopped our history, but it didn't. And I look back now as a 30-year survivor of HIV, I look back now to those time periods and said, yes, we've made it. And that's what I want people to see and feel in another 50 years, that we've made it, that we made it past coronavirus, that we live to tell. Yeah, I think this is hitting a lot of people hard. Um, you know, I, I got a message from somebody the other day um, who is also a longtime survivor of HIV back when they were doing AZT and everything. And uh, he said, you know, my generation went through a, a plague, really, uh, but at least we could stand next to our partners who were dying in the hospital and be with them as they were passing. And he said, I'm so sorry that, that your generation has to go through this where people are dying alone and you can't even be in the same room with that person. And just by sheer numbers, this is at least we knew sort of the target, the target group that it was affecting. Mm -hmm. And this is now a global thing and it's affecting everybody. It's not it's not just affecting the gay community. It's affecting everybody, people's parents, people's grandparents, people's sisters and brothers and what have you. And that's what I think is scaring a lot of people. Yeah. It's affecting people whether or not they want to admit it. Yeah. I'm curious now, I really want to know about your journey to becoming Mr. Long Beach Leather. I've done this before. I've had a title before twice in San Diego. Okay. Uh, Mr. San Diego Bear 2003 and Mr. San Diego Eagle 2005. Uh, Mr. San Diego Eagle for the Eagle for the San Diego Eagle in the North Park area, uh, which is where where the Eagle is now and where wolves used to be. So they, they they were trying to create that as a leather district, and it it's kind of gentrified now. Um, but those those places are still there. So I was chatting with people and having, uh, uh, chatting with bears and having some, uh, some early sexual experiences with them and got involved uh, with, ha had, a, had a good uh, friend that I would chat with who was partnered and was involved in the local bear club. And he kept inviting me out to events and I said, oh, I'll, eventually I'll get there. And I did eventually get there and it was the night of the Mr. Bear San Diego contest. It was in the back room, so you know, an article of article of leather or shirtless, and again, a different world. Um, and then I saw these these guys get up on stage, hairy, some, some of them big, some of them hairy and big, some of them skinny and hairy. And I was just, I became transfixed by what I was seeing on the stage. So the the thing that was different. Uh, or the thing that the thing that let me know that something was up was that they sent the contestants after they were done being introduced and they introduced the judges. The contestants were sent out to mingle with the people in the back room, and it was interesting having the the contestants approach me, and I could get really spoiled <laughs> on the on the amount of attention that they were giving to me. Not you know because that's just the way that's just the way that they were. 
as people. But that was the night that I met my first daddy bear. And we immediately clicked and we immediately got hot and heavy and we found a space together to go have my first bear sex. Oh my gosh. Mm, like what? Oh, I'm just getting hard. So keep going. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. <laughs> um, and the, the thing about that night that I remember the most, the one thing I remember the most about that night was the feeling of being invincible. So the daddy bear that I met that it was a contestant uh, and I, we got pretty hot and heavy pretty fast and we decided to go spend some time together outside of the bar, which was getting pretty close to closing time anyway. And the one thing that I remember more than anything else about that night was this feeling of invincibility that we walked out shoulder to shoulder, hand to hand, and we walked out, but I felt like I had been hoisted up on his shoulder. I just, I just felt like I could do anything in that moment. And that was something I was not accustomed to feeling in public spaces as a general rule. So to have it happen here um, was really special because it made the connection between us that night. I think it cemented the connection in some way uh, mm-hmm. for us that night uh, for the rest of the time uh, of our friendship. And I've now known him for 20 years. I'd managed to make it out to this event finally. And I was originally there to meet a leather couple who wanted to use me as their toy that night. They didn't show up. So I went in the back room and, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. (laughs) And I got closer with him and a few other bears in the club. Then a couple weeks later, got together with somebody that would become my first leather submissive, my first leather or kinky submissive. Um, who just happened to be uh, an interpreter at San Diego Gay Pride Festival during the headlining act. And I recognized him in a chat. I, I picked his name out of a chat in, in, in gay.com. And I, I recognized him when I saw his picture and said, you were the guy that was up on stage interpreting for them. And we got together and he came over to the house one time. And that was my first dominant experience. And so it was, that was in the space of six weeks. Wow. Okay. So you had your first dom sub experience then with, with this guy. I did. And it was, I'd gotten together with him once and it was pretty vanilla. So I start, I talked to him and I started talk, started talking to him regularly and he came over. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to bring it up to him that I was uh, getting involved in the more adventurous side of myself and come to find out that he was in the same uh, boat as me and was also a kinky person, although I wouldn't have identified myself that way then, but was uh, every time that I said something, he it registered with him. Every time he said something, it registered with me. And we proceeded to have not just a, the first Dom sub experience, but the first barnstormer. Barnstormer? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> barnstormer. Katie, bar the doors, some shit's going down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's that's the, the interesting thing about this, some of the scenes that I do, the more memorable scenes that I do, that they just come to me and it just I just start acting them out. If there's no consent, I pull back. But it just seems that these experiences and these impulse, the, the impulses to do things come to me and it gels. It just sort of gels. There's not a lot of discussion that's necessary, and it gels 
partially because we're both there for the same thing, but also partially because we trust each other. Yeah. And I, I did like a mixture of CBT and body punching on him. I had no idea that that was inside of me. But as it was coming out, I let it come out. And within a half hour, he was, he was begging and screaming for mercy in all the right ways. That sounds really hot. So, okay. <laughs> I know there are different ways to be dumb. Um, I, I have a sub who likes, for example, humiliation. And then I know there's more verbal doms or, or more um, physical doms. What kind of dom situation was that you were talking about punching and it sounds pretty physical. It was, it was me being introduced to my own dominant side, but also to my own sadistic side mm. and that I, I didn't know I had that in me. Yeah. I didn't know that that was a part of me until I let myself experience it. And once I did, I was a different person on the other side of it. I, 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 I'm just imagining right now, you know, like you said, begging for mercy in all the right ways. Mm-hmm. How does that look when he's, is he like on his knees and, and begging for mercy and you're just like kind of playing with that energy at that point now that you have him there? Or how does that kind of dom play look for you? <laughs> he was, uh, he was on the floor not bound. I was standing above him, my foot on his chest. And every once in a while, I'd reach down and, and strike him in the balls. And he would just, the growling and the, and the whining and the whimpering and the, the shouting would just keep growing. It was, I realized that I had, I had power in that moment. And he had power in the moment because he was giving that to me. That sounds so hot to me, especially I'm thinking more of like as a, as a sub, like kind of relinquishing that control to you and trusting that you're not going to go so far as to hurt me beyond, you know, mm-hmm. what you see fit. And but just hearing like, you know, feeling like the, the pain of the CBT and having your foot on his chest, like I can just imagine that sort of dynamic play between the two of you. Uh, very dynamic. Yes. <laughs> So I do have a question about the Dom thing. Have you ever found yourself where you took it too far and you had to pull back and apologize? Or have you always just been very careful to be very sensitive to that threshold? I have always been careful to be sensitive to that threshold. Mm -hmm. Um, There there has been one boy uh, that was not ready for what I wanted to do. And it became like, it became leg wrestling where, you know, I would try to do something with him and in his mind, he wasn't there yet. He wasn't able to go there yet. And so it didn't work with him because, and, and, and I would back off, you know, I don't do, it's, it's, as it was explained to me, the, the, the safe words I use are the traffic signal lights. So red means stop. And it's my goal. I, I have made it my goal, as, as was taught to me, um, to never have somebody say red. If they say yellow, that we have to define if, if yellow means to slow down or speed up. And so most of the time, yellow means slow down. And I just pay attention to that because otherwise it's a violation of their consent, clear-cut violation of their consent. If they say yellow, that means slow down and you don't. And it's not prearranged that yellow means speed up. That's violation. 
Okay, so that, it sounds like you have pretty clear communication with each other then. I do have I have a clear communication with him, and I pay attention to his body. I think a lot of things can be read by body language as well. Um, all right, so for a while there, we were getting into your previous titles and talking about your journey through San Diego. How did you find yourself as Mr. Long Beach Leather, the current title holder? The same adage uh, was still true uh, for me this time around as it was the, the other two times mm-hmm. is that you can plan and prepare all you want, but when the, when the spotlight hits you, you it's a different ballgame. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there was, I did feel more prepared this time around. And, you know, I think that has to do with maturity, <laughs> a chance to, uh, you know, a chance to grow and, and become more of my own person. I had been asked uh, several times and I had considered several times between 2005 and 2019 to compete for various titles, but I was involved in school. I wanted to graduate and at one point I wasn't necessarily, I would still go to contests, but I wasn't necessarily like super fascinated by them anymore. Then I started seeing men uh, win titles and seeing what they were doing with the titles and it seeing that they were really doing good things with the titles. And I wanted to, I I felt like, I felt like the time was right to jump back in. I had said that I was always going to do it one more time. I didn't know how long it would be before I would do it again, but I knew that the moment would happen. The moment I started to realize that the moment was approaching would be possible because of two individuals. The first individual was Pup Yoshi, Mr. Eagle 562 Leather, the inaugural. He and Louis Ramrod, Mr. Long Beach Leather 2018, uh, worked together in Long Beach to create uh, fun, fascinating events. And just the way that they carried themselves as title holders, just the things that they did for the community, and the fact that the community itself was finally shifting to allow more people that weren't cis, gay, white men to have these titles. Those things kind of all roll together to make me want to try it again. And how did you feel when you found out that you actually won the title? Did you expect it? I did not expect it. Uh, and <laughs> when, it, yeah, when it happened, it took about a week for it to hit. It took, yeah, I, I, I allowed myself that first week to just sort of, it, it had, you know, I knew it happened but I needed some time for it to like really to absorb it. Um, because along with that, along with that moment comes the, the realization of, Oh, you're going to be doing this for the next year. <laughs> you're going to be working for the community and, and putting on events for them and working for charity and working to make the community a better place. You're going to be doing a whole lot of traveling and it's just the, I let the whirlwind of all those things happen during that first week. And I took a week to write out my thank yous, like one day at a time. I would announce, I would say, acknowledge the contestant staff one day. I would, I would acknowledge the, the community and title holders that came out to see me the next day and so on and so forth. And then I ended on Friday with saying, thank you for letting me have this week to dream. And now the work begins. So with this whole, I mean, we all kind of got thrown for a loop here with the whole COVID-19 thing, but are you planning to go to IML? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, yes. I have, I have my application all ready to submit, uh, except to, except I haven't clicked it to, <laughs> to actually send it. 
yeah, um, the application is ready and filled out. The, the photographs are submitted. Um, I, I can't say a whole lot. So let me ask you this. As a third-time title holder, what is your platform or what is your mission this time around as Mr. Long Beach Leather? Uh, my platform is the connecting people through their stories and shared experiences. That's perfect. I mean, that's yeah. what you're doing here right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in what ways do you plan to connect people in this way? Um, I got right to work. Um, as I as I'd said earlier, the first event I went to after the weekend was Barking Billiards. <clears throat> and I have tried to make it a point at each event that I go to to walk up to somebody that's maybe not in the dark parts of the bar, but sort of off to the side that maybe wants uh, to have a conversation and strike up a conversation with them. And this was the first chance I had to do that with. And it just so happened the person, there was somebody there that was re-entering the community, but this time as a sober person. And I just got to have a conversation with him because I was curious what he thought he might find on this side of the equation now that he wasn't drinking. Mm -hmm. And just to give him a chance to come back in and to be the welcome mat. So, you know, some people approach this like they're Julie, the cruise director, um, but I'm the welcome, I'm the welcome, Matt. <laughs> you, can, you can walk in, you can walk right in and talk to me anytime you want to. The other person that I had a chance to meet was a, a young man of color who was at the Mr. Bullet contest the night you won. And he struck up a conversation with me while I was waiting to go on stage to introduce myself. And we continued this conversation after I came back down on stage, but he had said, I've seen you around everywhere. And he was telling me that he appreciated what I was doing. And I, I had to I had to also let him know that I appreciated the fact that the community was letting me do this, hmm. that there was an openness. There was an openness to want to hear from other people that makes that that made them more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So your mission is really just to connect people. To connect people to other people and to connect people to themselves. That's really deep, to connect people to themselves. And in many ways, Leather has done that for all of us. Right. And again, as much as we've talked about it, there's just there's so much that, that goes on with leather scenes, with the community uh, dynamics, the power exchanges. There's so much of that that still goes on that words fail to describe and that is the iconography of it, if you will, that it's just meant to be experienced. If you want to go about describing it uh, later on, you know, I, I'm a writer. That's what I'm here on earth to do. And that's what I spend a large part of my time, my downtime doing these days, especially now, is writing about the experiences. But at the time, I'm just, I'm just interested in experiencing them and letting that experience be what it is, that, that kind of focus and that kind of that, that kind of itness, mm-hmm. it, it, if that makes sense, the the suchness of it, if, if you want to talk uh, in in those terms, is just what it is. <laughs> so, uh, since I have so much extra free time, uh, one of the things that I uh, also like to do is create uh, music online through digital platforms, and I uh, create music albums. and uh, An idea came to me 
a few weeks ago to sort of document the things that we're going through, through music and through spoken word. And uh, I'm not going to say who, but I'm working with one of the LA 2020 class members who is going to be the person that recites the material through, through the spoken word and the music. It's going to be a way to organically express things that a lot of us have been feeling since this has taken over our lives. Awesome. And what is that going to be called? Or have you come up with a name? Well, tentatively, the name is Trapped Inside, but that is likely to change. It would also be interesting to look back at this music project in the time that it takes for, for the interview to, to be heard. It'd be interesting to look back at this and see, well, you know, what's happened since then. Yeah, definitely. So how can we reach out to you or get connected with you if we wanted to? I have a Facebook page, Mr. Long Beach Leather 2019. You can also reach me through another uh, another Facebook page that I have called New Horizons for 50, which is uh, basically what I call a decentralized website. New Horizons for 50? Yes. Um, okay. that, was, that came about as an idea because last year in 2019, I turned 50. Okay. And one of the, one of the, uh, the signature articles is going to come out later on in the summer about what it means to be 50. All right. Awesome. And, but, but mostly you see me, you know, when we can actually start going out to events, that's, that's how you find me too. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll make sure to stay connected with you one way or another. Yes. Assuming that we're out of this sooner than later, um, do you have any events that are coming up or virtual or in-person events that you're having? Uh, well, there's a virtual. Th this will have happened after this will this will have aired after it happened. But I'll go ahead and mention it anyway. Uh, Long Beach is doing a, a virtual pride through a group that my producers have called Pigs, which uh, is stands for Perverse Interracial Guys. That's Matt Jensen and Joel Thomas. Yeah, and they um, they normally have a, every third Sunday they have an event called Pigskin at the Eagle Five Six Two. Um, so hopefully, you know, as things lift, those events will start to happen again. But this time we've decided that Long Beach may not be able to have a pride in, in person or a physical pride, but we're doing a virtual pride. That's awesome. And I will make sure to put links for that in the description below. Uh, before we go, any last words that you would like to leave us with? Stay home. <laughs> Stay home. Um, we're not out of this yet. It's not exactly sure when we'll be out of it, but I want to hug you all. I want to give you all good long 20-second hugs. Whenever that's allowed to happen, the sooner we stay home and decide to listen and practice distancing and the whole bit, the sooner we can get out there and we can start hugging each other and being with each other. Well, I'm giving you a big old virtual 20-second hug right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, we hope to see you soon thank you for having me before we go I'd just like to remind our listeners of the LA Leather COVID-19 Assist as well as the LALC Cares between these two organizations you can find assistance with daily tasks grocery delivery a lifeline and a pantry if you or someone you know is in need please reach out I will have links in the description below don't forget to rate and subscribe. You can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet. And if you haven't heard the bonus episode with Foxy and Fugue already, go back and take a look. 
You can find more bonus material like this on Patreon, where you can help support the podcast. Anything you pledge will go towards supporting the cost of maintaining the show, as well as making it possible to keep hearing these very important stories from people within the leather community. Thank you so much for all of your support. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky. Okay.